Hello and welcome to another episode of the Midiera Meets podcast where we speak to all sorts of people who work within sound and music. On the show this time we have absolute gaming legend Tim Wright who has been making games uh, since his early childhood on the VIC-20, even selling games in the school playground uh, at times, uh, which he programmed himself. He went on to release music and sound effects for a ton of seminal games, as well as working for Psygnosis in the PlayStation era and working on the monumental Wipeout series and the music within it. He also made MTV music for the PS1 and PS2. I can't fit any more into the intro. Uh, I can, however, ask you uh, if you'd like to donate, that it'd be greatly appreciated. I do do all this stuff by myself, so you can donate via PayPal or via Ko-fi if you like. Uh, all donations are really, really appreciated, and I'd love to hear what you think of the show, and I hope you're enjoying it too. Okay, enough of that, let's get on with it. And the first question I asked him was about his musical beginnings. I would say probably, um, well, a few things, really. My my father would always wander around whistling. So that was his thing. Um, uh, and, and we lived on a farm for a, for a good long while after about the year. Yeah, how old would I be? I guess about three. Um, and, uh, yeah, you, you know, he, he's still alive. I'm talking about him in the past tense, but just historically, mm-hmm. uh, just to make that clear. <laughs> well, he was the last time I spoke to him. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, he, he'd be, you know, whistling top of his lungs. So that was, that's definitely something from, from childhood. Uh, my auntie, Zena, she, she was a teacher for a lot of her working life, um, retired now. But, yeah, she played the guitar, piano, um, and she taught, um, I don't think, I don't know whether she taught it actually at school, but it was certainly part of the syllabus because she's, believe it or not, she taught deaf kids. Wow. Um, so at one point in my teenage years, I was dragged in to, uh, write some software on a BBC micro computer, um, when that was a thing in schools. Um, I remember that. Yeah, and, and <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean sort of briefly on that I always wanted one uh, ended up using one in the schools but went the route of Vic 20 and Commodore 64 but um, obviously I was using it in school so I was aware of how to program it so she dragged me into uh, into the school and said yeah we need some stuff programming here um, music based stuff so I was like uh, not being funny but aren't we in a deaf school <laughs> and she said yes but deaf kids can put their hand on speakers and feel rhythms and, you know, and so on. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, face palm. Of course they can. Mm. So that was good. That was great fun. Um, so, yeah, she was she featured uh, in my early years. I remember her being reasonably musical. Um, and, of course, Top of the Pops, uh, which was, was in the background, and the radio a lot. But I wasn't really enamoured with sort of pop music at that early age. And I was writing, um, writing. I was composing music when I was laying in bed, sort of three, four years old, talking complete gibberish, but, you know, making up little tunes and stuff. Um, and I've still got a cassette tape here from, I don't know, when would it be? Early 70s. 
my father put the uh, a little sort of uh, cassette tape machine just outside the bedroom door and recorded me singing to myself. That's um, so brilliant. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's uh, it's in tune, but the it's nonsense lyrics. You know, doopa chaka doody boopa daka doo all this kind of thing. Um, yeah, I think it was just sort of getting around the whole ooh and ah and shawaddy waddy and all that kind of thing and making up my own nonsense. So yeah, that's. I think that pretty much sums up my. Uh, yeah, it was a thing. It was I was aware of it and I participated in it. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's great that you still have those recordings because so many of us have like those things have disappeared into the sort of. The, the mysteries of, of of our past lives, all those little tapes that we had. So it's great that you still had that. What, what's pretty amazing is how many of the people I've spoken to have that experience of having a cassette recording of their early years. Um, and I wonder whether a phone and like modern technologies will give people that uh, same experience. I don't know. I mean, the opportunities there, uh, the technologies there. But the one thing that I discovered was that it's kind of throwaway. So there's so much of it. There's a lot online, obviously. You know, I guess in the future, maybe Facebook will still be around with, you know, videos and stuff like that for people to to download. But a lot of people's stuff is online. It's, you know, it's on social media. Um, and if there's some kind of solar flare or uh you know each of these companies goes down the pan or whatever you know people are going to lose a big chunk of their recorded history um and i know uh go on so i was going to say my my, uh my ex's sister she would just keep recording photographs on uh you know little memory sticks and then when they were full she wouldn't download to computer she'd take them out and throw them into a drawer Mm -hmm. um you know, the archival life of those things varies. They don't need batteries to just sit there and kind of hold the, the image. But I don't know for how long. But I always sort of ridiculed her and said, hey, you know, you need to get these backed up and put them on a computer, get them on a hard drive so they're nice and safe. And thinking about it now, maybe she's got the best idea, uh, you know, because as long as you keep them safe, you know, down the line, oh, my hard drive's crushed. Uh, oh, yeah, I think I've got mine somewhere in a shoebox. And then she'll have this big archive. And I would imagine some of, you know, most of them would, would work. Yeah, it's, it is an interesting thing. I'm literally talking to one of my previous guests. He's, he's in that predicament of having CDs that he burnt 20 years ago on his computer and the old computer that he burnt them on and made them on. And the data's not reading, like the table of contents of what's on there is reading, but the actual contents aren't. So, um, yeah, I guess it's something that we all have to... We all have to like think about it's like how much do we really want these things? And I think that is a great idea, just sticking it on a SD drive mm. card. But um, I mean, yeah, I mean, analog's the thing. You know, I've got cassette tapes. Yeah, from the seventies, eighties, nineties. Um, most of them sound kind of okay, and they'll they'll degrade gracefully <laughs> unless they snap or whatever. Um, but digital it either works or it doesn't. Yeah, you just get with with the corrupted audio file. It's just the harshest white noise you've ever heard, isn't it? If it's corrupted, yeah, it's just like it breaks your speakers and your ears. Or you can pay somebody like five hundred quid to, uh, or dollars, or whatever currency people are using, uh, get a specialist to recover it. Yeah, but I mean, who wants to do that? It's much better to have some kind of 
slightly noisy tape or whatever that you can at least still hear the essence of of what was done. Mm. Um, I think it's all about re-triggering memories, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I've got some um, recordings I took on a mini disc of school, like playtime and lessons and stuff, and it is just that of triggering memories. It's like you close your eyes and you're sort of still back there. Um, but you're right about phones and stuff being throwaway because you can just record and record and record. Whereas back in the day with tapes and stuff, you had like four tapes that were yours and then your sister had three and you'd like label them up, wouldn't you? So they were like these precious things of like side A on that one's really important to me. Yeah. And if you've got, you've got, like you say, just a handful of tapes, if you listen to that all the way through, it's like an archive of various days across years yeah. uh, and things will get cut off and... You might have had a, a cassette of your favourite, um, <laughs> let's go back really far, like Ultravox or Duran Duran recording. And then halfway through, your sister's voice goes, I wonder if this is working. <laughs> and you're like, no, you've wrecked it. And then 20 years later, you don't care about that Duran Duran or Ultravox or whatever it was. Hearing your sister's voice going, is this working? That's the precious thing that's, that's so on that true. tape. It's so true. Yeah. At the time, it was like, yeah, you're going to... Yeah, I'm exactly. going to kill you. <laughs> you were one of five children, is that correct? I still am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> grew up with... Uh... Yeah, that's cool, man. So you must have had a lot of sort of like influences musically and, and sort of things like that between you. You'd think, wouldn't you? Um, I mean, it was quite an insular childhood because... We lived in a small village, well, up until I was about, yeah, about three, then moved to the farm, which is kind of out in the middle of North Wales. Um, and then the, you know, the siblings were added. Uh, my mum got to five and went, right, okay, that's enough. <laughs> um, so only one sister, though. So it's just like very uh, masculine household. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, it was a bit of a strange one because I started piano lessons uh, quite young about sort of seven-ish, I think. And um, then there's my sister. She didn't do it. Then the next brother down, Lee, he started piano lessons as well. Um, and, of course, the, the thrust there is classical. So, you you know, you, you're getting that. You, um, there are music programmes that you're watching on TV, but, again, it wasn't really... It was bizarre. My brother was really into classical music. Um, and I kind of was as well and didn't really pay attention to what was going on musically until I got into my teens. And of course it's like, well, you know, where are the ladies at? <laughs> well, they're at nightclubs and pubs and so on. They're not going to be on this farm in the middle of nowhere. So you get out there and then you hear all the music. Uh, and it's like, but it's in your face then. It's coming out of speakers. It's not just coming out of a little TV in the corner. Yeah, yeah, you're feeling so, it. Yeah, so that was a trigger, and then it's like, all right, okay, well, I want a piano. Like, I want to use the piano not just as a, a learning device. I want to actually start writing my own tunes, because that didn't kick in until the teens, really. Um, and a guitar. So, yeah, that's when the real songwriting kicked in, I think. Amazing. Yeah, you talked about having a piano uh, in your house. Yeah, what sort, of, what sort of songs were you doing then? I mean, I can appreciate not liking classical music. I was... Uh, I can relate to that completely, having piano lessons and not wanting to play like Ode to Joy and things like mm. that. I wanted to play like Jean-Michel Jarre and, you know, I wanted a keyboard synth lesson rather than a piano lesson, but was sort of forced 
to do piano lessons. So, so what, what sort of stuff were you making on the piano? What sort of stuff were you doing? Um, around about the time when I really started to get interested in commercial music and, you know, it was on the radio and stuff, it was, I mean, you had mod, you had uh, Scar, rock and roll, of course, that was still going. Uh, punk was kind of on the way out. But the thing that I got into was, I guess, the tail end of New Romantic and the electronic stuff. So a bizarre combination of uh, Howard Jones, Nick Kershaw, Craftwork, um, um, who else? Human League. Um, strangely, actually, some of the new romantic bands I wasn't keen on. So like Duran Duran, I fell in love with later. Um, and yeah, that, that, that whole sort of, uh, yeah, that, the, the whole sort of long shirts and everything. And it didn't really grab me. So it's more the electronic side of things. And yeah, Jar obviously. Mm. I mean, I mean, he was a he was a big thing. And because I was into computers and the computer demo scene, um, Commodore sixty four era, um, there were a lot of demos there where people had sort of penned his music on the SID chip. So, yeah, there was. I think it was those. It was that sort of um, electronic. Um, with a hint of, well, a big smattering of 80s, yeah. um, rather than the real purist sort of stuff. Um, and then I got into, like, Yellow Magic Orchestra and stuff like that afterwards. Um, I'm trying to think who else was really... I think you um, mentioned Yazoo as well, Vince Clark. Um, yeah, not so much then. I mean, I, I got into Erasure first, and then historically Yazoo, kind of looking back at what else has Vince done. And I knew he was in Depeche Mode, but I wasn't really into Depeche Mode back then. Uh, when they got all sort of dark and drug-addled and, you know... <laughs> what was their... Uh, was it Violator? Was that the... Oh, I'm not Reach sure. Out and Touch Faith, that one. Your own personal, personal Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. When they started doing that sort of thing, I was like, ah, oh, OK. Yeah, now this is getting interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so the piano... Uh, the first thing I taught myself to play was Axel F., Nice. And I kind of got it slightly wrong, I think, but more or less right, you know, by ear. I think the bass line slightly out. Um, so that was one thing that I did, and I got a cassette recorder and recorded myself playing it. And then it was my party piece. You know, <laughs> if we went around to somebody's house and they had a piano or a synth, huh? I'd go, oh, can I have a play with that? And they'd go, yeah. Oh, did you play? No, not really. And they were like, oh, wow. So that was, that was an opener. Um, but, you know, honestly, guitar... I had an acoustic guitar, student size, and um, I wrote a lot of songs using that because it's just so easy to sit there and strum and, you know, write a few lyrics and whatever uh, in your bedroom. You can't drag the piano into your bedroom, and the piano was unfortunately in the lounge. So, you know, if it was... You had to pick your moment. Yeah. So my dad was in there, he was watching TV, or he wanted a quiet moment. He didn't want some kid banging away on the piano in the corner. Play the Moonlight Sonata at the same time. <laughs> yeah, or Axel F for the 400th time. I do remember one moment where 
I come up with a song, and it was pretty basic, but but you know, with the uh, as we used to call it, the loud pedal, so the sustain pedal on the piano. Uh-huh. I did this sort of octave bass tune, um, and I really liked it. I thought it had potential. In fact, I should I should uh, drag that forward to today. Uh, makes mental note, but yeah. So I, I was going for my piano lessons every week with a break of a couple of months, you know, every now and again. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, I've, I've written my own tune. And I had this very staunch and, and stark uh, German piano teacher. You know, oh, you have? Okay, play it for me then. So I played it from start to end with a little flourish at the end and took my foot off the sustain paddle, really chuffed with myself. And he goes, yeah, quite repetitive. Anyway, have you been practising? And then just opened the book. <laughs> so it was like, it was my first review and it was a crushing one from, That's pretty damning, you know, yeah. some guy that, uh, yeah. Oh no, that go, that story goes on because uh, I wrote some like orchestral music for a game, went to see him like, um, what would it be now? Like, I guess 15, is that about right? 15 years ago, maybe longer. I played it to him on CD and uh, he was like, hmm. Not bad, but it's not a real orchestra. <laughs> I was like, oh, you SOB. But I didn't say that. I was just like, yeah, okay, fair enough. And then I went back another five years later where I'd got a cracking sample library, written more music. It was the music for Colony Wars. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it sounded, yeah, sounded yeah. fairly realistic. I mean, you can kind of tell, but I mean, it was close enough. So I played that to him and he said... Uh, yeah, I can see you're improving. I was like, oh. <laughs> finally, that's uh, sometimes it's good to have those real critical people, isn't it? Sometimes they do actually help you in a weird way if it doesn't crush you completely. Oh, and it, it's painful at the time, but I mean, it just keeps you going. It's like, right, I'm gonna. It's almost like a challenge. Do you know what I mean? I mm. guess if it depends on your personality and how much you value their opinion and whether they're genuinely being horrible. He just had high standards and I think maybe he knew that I had it in me and he was just wanted to see how far he could push me to either I present him with something that's okay or he just, you know, I tell him to go himself. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because so. you, you did also mention a similar, um, uh, was a story that's coming to my mind when possibly when you worked at Psygnosis and it might have been on the Wipeout soundtrack when there was another composer that you respected. Was it Mike Clark? I want to say it was Mike Clark. I might have got that name wrong. But overheard a tune that you were working on and you said that he'd never really, yeah, he wasn't very positive about anything that you'd worked on and he said, oh, that was okay. <laughs> and and that was a big deal. It is Mike Clark, yeah. He, was, yeah. he was the other in-house musician at Wavertree, Wavertree Tech Park. Oh, well, actually, he was at Century Buildings before that as well. Uh, was he... I don't think he was particularly negative about my stuff. Um, he was just sort of matter-of-fact. You mm. know, we're both musicians. Um, so it was like... It, it was a bizarre situation because it doesn't really come up. You're both sitting there writing music for various things and it's more a case of, what are you working on? Oh, I'm doing that. Oh, yeah. How's it going? Yeah, that's about it. Very casual, mm. laissez-faire. It wasn't a yeah. case of, hey, you know, great stuff, Mike. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that didn't really go on. 
On one occasion, I'd, I'd written music for uh, a game called Magician's Castle on the Amiga. Um, this is when we were still back at Century Buildings. And it didn't get released. I think it did eventually. It was for the Amiga, but it eventually came out on PC on some sort of cover disc. Um, but, you know, off into obscurity. But I spent ages on that music. And he was a big... Well, his, his sort of initial start was on the Amiga. And I think he always felt that I was more sort of into the writing the music in terms of just banging some samples in, getting the tune going. And if I was happy with it and the mix was all right, it was going out. Whereas with the Magician's Castle, I had to get, use really small samples and get quite intricate with it. And it was all sort of uh, Baroque style stuff and, you know, of that vibe, you know, castles and knights of, law, of yore and all that kind of thing. So mm. he did actually say when I was composing those, wow, that's uh, really loving the, the composition there. So it wasn't just on that occasion, but with the Wipeout stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he did actually say, how are you writing this stuff? Because I wouldn't know kind of like where to, where to dig in or whatever. Uh, and I, I, I was honest, I said, I've no clue, Mike. I'm just, you know, going with the vibe. I'm a, I'm a melody man. As long as it's got melody in there, I'll go with the style. I'll go with the style of percussion. Um, had sample discs that I was sort of, you know, that were contemporary, so I'm throwing those samples in. But I wasn't really listening to much other music to get reference. I was just more obsessed with, does it sound fast enough? Mm. You know, if, I, if I'm playing this game, is it going to drive me to go faster? And I would literally start writing the song at 135 BPM and just keep notching it up <laughs> to, to the point where it was like, oh, okay, back off, because this is sounding like ridiculous now. Yeah, it's sounding more like Gabba. <laughs> so... That's yeah. great, man. That's great. Um, and yeah, definitely we can, it'd be great to go into some of the Wipeout stuff and the, the big sort of breakbeat um, stuff that you made because it's bloody amazing. And it's like burnt into my, as with lots of people who must speak to you, it's like burnt into my brain. If I close my eyes and hear those tracks, I can see, I can see Wipeout before me. But yeah, before then maybe, um, yeah, you worked on a few, you, yeah, you, you started programming music and sound effects for the Amiga how yeah how did you so yeah you i mean you've got a phenomenal list of stuff that you've worked on man it's so impressive like the video games that you've worked on uh especially in terms of like what's what's been popular and what stood the test of time um mm. yeah what what got you in from sort of being at home uh on the vic 20 um into sort of composing i know that was probably quite a long time but yeah what what how did that progress happen uh, yeah, I've done quite a lot. I, that's the advantage of A, being very old. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> for those listening, I'm 54. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> and also just a big helping of luck. Um, if you believe in such things, um, mm. or just happenstance. So yeah, I'm sat in front of an, a, a VIC-20 and we're kind of we're way back. I mean, people can Google when the VIC-20 came out and we got one you know, sort of two or three years after they came out. And uh, I was more interested in getting it to do things and say hello to me and stuff like that, you know. So I'd write stupid programs where I'd have a predefined number of questions and then I'd get one of my younger brothers to come in and say, <laughs> you know, ask it, ask it, is it raining today? You know, so he'd type in, is it raining? And he'd hit enter. And it'd say, 
Yes, it's been drizzling all morning, but it should clear up later. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, so that, that was that so was cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, I did the similar kind of thing. I built a robot out of cardboard boxes, and had a cassette recorder inside. With uh, I put it through. I can't remember what I put it through. Something. Ah, yeah, that was it. I had a stylophone um, external speaker. They're quite rare, actually, and it had a tremolo, of all things, just wow. volume and tremolo. Um, is that a standalone? So re- yeah, I've still got it somewhere. It's a oh my black God. box about, uh, let's do centimetres for the international folks. Um, what is it? What's that? Uh, 12 centimetres by like 28 and then about 10 or 12 deep. Black with a, with a silver front, stylophone logo. Two massive 9-volt batteries. You know the huge ones? Yeah. Like old yeah, school. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, not a yeah. little, like a big fat thing, the size of a small loaf. Uh, so two of those inside, and it had two inputs, so you could put two stylophones in, or anything. You know, you could put like a Walkman in, and uh, speaker was just, it was all right, but it wasn't brilliant. So I had volume, and then I had this trem button. So wow. for those listening, tremolo was just taking the volume up and down really quickly. Um, so at full tilt, it could sound a little bit Dalek-y. So yeah, so I'd recorded myself saying, you know, Hello, Ali. Um, yes, I like you too, and all these sort of things. So I got my younger brother in again, and I was like, "Yeah, the robot's here. He wants to talk to you." And he was like, "Yeah, right." This is cardboard box, and he's like, "No, no, no." But he's got innards and everything. You know, say hello, hello, robot. Hello, Ali. And he was like, "Oh my god!" So I got him to, get, and then he goes, "I'm going to ask it." No, no, no. You've got to ask it certain questions. <laughs> Uh, and is that through typing? Yeah. Were they typing in the questions to the robot? No, no, this was literally just a cassette recorder. Right. And, and yeah, and with the with the cassette recorder that I had, you had the mic plugged in, and if you put the switch off and on, it was in play. You could pause it and and unpause it. <laughs> so I had that brilliant. sort of tucked in my, tucked behind my back, and I was just you know carefully switching it off and on. Your your brother um, sisters must have thought you were like magic from the future or something. Well, that's the advantage of being the eldest as well. So you, you can do all these things and you also can say to your mum and dad, hey, can I go skydiving? Yeah, I don't see why not. Ah, break legs. Then the next kid, you know, hey, I want to go skydiving like Tim did. No, he broke his legs. You ain't going anywhere. So there was a lot of that going on. Anyway, I'm digressing wildly. Uh, Vic 20. So, yeah, I did, I think I composed green sleeves. That was the first... Well, I didn't compose it, did I? I, I Not originally. <laughs> recreated it um, on the VIC-20 uh, in a, using a basic programme and literally just sort of guessing the notes and the values and everything. Uh, oh, I think it was a lookup table at the back of the, the programming manual that came with it. And is that um, line-by-line programming? Is that how you're programming that? How would you...? It was just... Uh, in basic, you can say, you know, uh, read a value... Um, from so basically you'd have like maybe you pro you program with line numbers so you go ten print Tim twenty go to ten run and it would print Tim over and over and over on the screen mm-hmm. so if you do ten read uh, the note value twenty read the length thirty read the gap or whatever and then play it and then loop around in there and then wow. lower down in your program 
say it's like 10, 20, 30, 40 in the numbers. Then at 500, you'd put data and then a number, comma, another number, comma, another number, comma, another number. And so the first two numbers would be probably the, uh, each, when you want to play a note, you have like a thing called a high byte and a low byte. So um, people can Google that as well. So you multiply the, the uh, high byte by 256 and, you, and the low byte is just like 1 to 256. It's like a fine tune. So yeah, so I'd, mm. I'd written this program and I just had the notes, how long it was, and then the gap before the next note. And that's how I got green sleeves to play. Wow. Uh, well, just the main riff. I mean, Jesus, that was, you know, boring as hell getting all those numbers in. Um, and after that, I, I found some music packages for the Commodore 64. So that's how you could, you know, actually get down to getting the, something out of the SID chip. Um, but I, uh, how did I sort of angle myself into the music composition side of things for computer games and so on? That was pretty straightforward. What happened was we eventually traded the VIC-20 in for the Commodore 64. And then I thought, right, I want to start writing games. Because there's money in games and it's fun and, you know, who wants to be an accountant or whatever? No offence to accountants listening. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess there was accounting software for the Commodore 64 as well. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, there <laughs> was everything to go down that route. Exactly. Well, I have one here, actually. Yeah. Oh, I have my C64 here. Way bread bin. <laughs> yeah, I've got the C64 in the corner there somewhere. And then behind me, I've got a Mega 65 uh, oh, wow. development kit because they, they made a hundred of those. So, yeah, I, I, as soon as I saw that was out, boom, got one, uh, luckily. Um, and then I've ju- they've, they've just now released the final thing, which kind of looks like a Commodore 64 for with a bit of extra space and a disk drive at the front um so I, I managed to get in on the first 400 of those as well so i was really made up so i don't know when that's going to arrive you know yeah i've seen i've seen that yeah is it is it am i right in thinking it's like a remake of the 65 um i'm sure i've seen a video of it um seen like a i've seen one with um uh, like a translucent case it looks amazing yeah the translucent case is the dev kit so that is kind of like, a, a, I think the final one's coming out is like a successor to that in some respect. You know, they've tweaked things a little bit. Uh, also, that one's got the disk drive on the side, like the old Amiga uh, and the ST, I think, are on the side as well. Uh, but the, the final one is very much kind of uh, modelled on the, the, you know, the C65. Um, Amazing. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's got its innards are, and people are going to, probably correct me if they can somehow probably just bombard me with emails yes. uh, i think it's fpg fpga based uh or asic one of the two i think it's fpga and um so the 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 difference there is it's not like having a pc and it's emulating everything in software it kind of emulates the hardware so it actually creates the log- logic gates on a chip um, and consequently, it's not just the Commodore 60, you know, C65. It can emulate the C64, VIC-20, even the Amiga, I think. Um, 
but yeah, so were you programming music on the Commodore 64 then? Yeah. Um, I, I, initially, I started the same way, you know, just because obviously the SID chip is just way above and beyond the, the sound chip on the VIC-20. So I was noodling away with the same principle, you know, just keying in some data and triggering some noises. And then I think it was, was it Rock Monitor 4, something like that, which could play samples as well. I mean, really horrible, grungy <laughs> percussion and stuff. So I started using that. Uh, but that's, that. I mean, that was just the tool. But the reason I went into that side of things was we got the Commodore 64. I started writing a shoot 'em up uh, in assembly. Well, first in, in basic with a bit of assembler, and that wasn't fast enough. And I thought, right, I really need to learn how to program in 6502. So um, rather than buying a cartridge or getting a, a machine code, um, program, you know, program that lets you enter machine code. I just wrote a little basic program that let you type in a number, hit enter, and it would just poke it into the memory. And then I would save that chunk of memory out to a cassette tape and then load it back in. And I had a little horrible little printer that was like something from a, um, like a newsagent or a fish and chip shop, um, where you, you know, it, you could tiny little characters and you could dump the whole of memory. So you, you know, you start printing from a particular address in memory and then the contents of that and you'd print print loads of it out. <laughs> and I got to the point where I could just look at it and go, oh yeah, that's where I've gone wrong. <laughs> yeah. And so my brother, Lee, he was, yeah, he, he came in and goes, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm writing a, you know, shoot map. And I designed a little sprite, a little ship and you could control it with the joystick and then, and you could fire a, a, a bullet he was like, oh, wow, how have you done that? So I was explaining to him how you program in 6502. You know, there's accumulator and you load a number in and then you can sort of, you can add or you can subtract and all that kind of thing. And he was like, yeah, but how do you think what to do next? So I talked to him about that. And then we got to the point where I was just trying to scroll some stars up the screen, well, down the screen. So it looked like the ship was flying mm -hmm. and it wasn't fast enough. And uh, within a couple of days, he said, oh, look at this. And not only had he bought himself a cartridge that where you could program in proper assembly, you know, LDA, type, type instructions in, press a button and it would compile it and, and it would actually create what I'd been doing literally in numbers. But he'd actually got the screen scrolling with the stars. Wow. And I was like, have you done that well you don't need to move the whole screen so you just have a table of the stars and where they are and then they you i was like oh okay i guess you're the programmer of the family then <laughs> so he said would... yeah sorry go on i did that um just from what i know uh, sort of that would be like just changing the vertical scrolling of of that reference would it is that how that would work yeah that's what i wanted to do was to uh sort of do the smooth scroll vertical and then shift the whole of the screen down which you can mm. do, but there's, there's, there's fast ways of doing it, which I didn't know when I was younger. You can use self-modifying code and all kinds of little tricks. And what he'd worked out is, yeah, you use the smooth scroll, but if you've got 20 stars on screen, you just move the 20 stars. Don't move right. every single character on the screen yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I mean, it's obvious Makes now, sense. but to <laughs> me it wasn't. Um, so he'd sort of thought around the, the, the problem. But of course, he still needed graphics. He needed ships and missiles and all that kind of thing. So I thought, well, I'll do that. So I started, you know, creating more for him. Um, and then I, I went away somewhere for a little bit and came back. And my next brother down, 
had created more ships and stuff, and they looked great. Wow. I thought, ah, oh, I guess he's the artist of the family then. Well, I can, it's going to need sound, isn't it? So, yeah. That's incredible. It's bizarre. You had a little um, a game studio between you. But, you know, you definitely inspired. You, you were the inspiration behind that. And um, that's amazing. That's so cool that you're all doing that. Yeah. Well, we, we formed a demo group in the end, uh, Jester Brothers International, <laughs> or JBI. Um, I think if you Google fillet the fish, it might come up. Uh, fillet the fish. Fillet the fillet fish. fish. Fillet the fish. Uh, fillet the fish two and a half. <laughs> fillet the fish 33 and a third. As you can see, we were stealing the titles from uh, Airplane. Naked Gun. Oh, was oh, it oh, Naked yeah, Gun? Airplane. Sorry, Naked Gun, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing, man. That's so good that you were doing that. Because um, I know you worked on it. One of your early games was... Um, I've got it written down here somewhere. Oh, Pugs in Space, that was it. And that sort of rung a bell for me when, when I was listening to you talking about Pugs in Space. Mm. Um, because I know of a game called Pugsy that came out like uh, on Mega Drive and on the Amiga, um, which you also worked on, right? You also worked on Pugsy. Yeah, well, there was a hiatus in terms of me and the demo scene. I mean, I was consuming it because uh, we had a friend um, who had a, a, a modem and he would go on the bulletin boards and down, download the Commodore 64 demos. Um, so we'd, we'd get to see those, and they were fantastic. And then fast wind a little bit, I got myself an Amiga 500, got into the demo scene there, and was, again, consuming all these demos that were coming out. I wasn't quite, quite sure. I guess it was just like I'd go to computer clubs and they'd just hand them out because there wasn't really a, a, you know, a, a modem situation with the Amiga initially. Um, mm. Well, not for me. Anyway. So just just to jump in on the demo scene, it's sort of like um, audio visual presentations done by uh, people off the map of the normal. People just making it from their bedrooms, I suppose, or in little group in groups, um, pushing the hardware to the limits, like visually and sonically. Is that a fair appraisal? How would you appraise? How would you explain the demo scene? Yeah, I mean that was fairly uh, Collins English Dictionary definition of the demo scene. I think it's yeah Good. pretty close. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, it is. It's it's um, you've got computers being used as a tool, you know, spreadsheets and so on. Then you've got computers being used to play games, which yeah, to an extent can push the technology. Um, and then you've got people who are just insane, and and want to kind of, I guess almost perform magic. So, um, and one of the vital elements, I think, of the demo scene is you need to know what's possible. So, I mean, yeah, first and foremost, it's, it can be entertaining. So if it's thematic, um, you know, if it's a little cartoon of a, you know, a dog wandering through the forest and blah, 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 meets a little girl, and so they do a narrative. So it's almost like creating a little film, then that's one thing. That can be appreciated anyway. But if you've just got 76 scrolling text messages all bouncing up and down and in the background there's Tutankhamun's, you know, burial mask or whatever, you can go, well, yeah, artistically it's a bit gauche, you know, it's not really, it's a bit uh, in your face, but I suppose if you like that thing. But anybody that knows the hardware would go, do you realise how hard that is? <laughs> this, the clock speeds only blah megahertz and the graphics mode for that is impossible you can't have 
one thing in the background moving and then things scrolling over the top and it's only got eight sprites and blah, you know, they're doing it. Um, so it's a little bit insular in that respect. You know, it's like Fight Club or whatever. It's, um, I think that's the real core of it is people seeing this hardware and going, okay, everybody knows that it can do X, Y, and Z, but, you know, mm. check it out. Now, you know, it's, it's behaving like a computer that's twice the price or that, that superseded it, allegedly. So it's a challenge yeah. and it's kind of exciting in that way. Definitely. I, know, I, I Like, I didn't have an Amiga, but I had an Atari and I had lots of other things. Mm. But I know that the, the sort of ball, the 3D ball that was uh, the Amiga was able to create, I remember that being like a heralded thing mm. uh, that people did. But also, yeah, the, the demo scene is amazing. And there's, there's tons of videos on YouTube of, like, classic demo scene videos and um, tracks and stuff. Uh, I know I picked up um, uh, some uh, music gear off a guy a few months ago and he we ended up talking about Commodore 64 because he had about six of them. And he was like, oh, you've got to go and check out this one demo thing. It's on YouTube. And he gave me like the name of it because he's like, it's my favourite tune ever. You've got to go and check it out. Um, yeah, it was a really, uh, really amazing, really amazing and inspiring scene. And that's one of the reasons I brought up um, Pugs in Space and Pugsy mm. because there's a guy... Cause, uh, John Burton is behind Traveller's Tales. That's right. And he yeah. has a YouTube channel where he explains how to do some of those things, some of those like technically impossible things. Mm. And um, for me, as someone who's a bit of a layman in like the programming side, I mean, I'm definitely like a gamer from a young age. But um, yeah, in the programming side, I always just like thought, oh, that looks great. I never thought about how you do it. And it's amazing to see John's videos of like, how he did the ship going like this in Pugsy yeah, on one of the bosses yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's um, it's good when you've got programmers who have got that ethic. You know, he's got a very sort of demo ethic. You know, what can be done? And well, I mean, it's an edge. It's a commercial edge as well when you're releasing games. Um, if he can, if he thought it, it's it's not just um, pushing something to the limit. It's having that concept initially thinking. Ah, if I do X, Y, and Z, if I do this, if I move that there, and then I throw this bit of memory into this bit of memory, the end, the net result will be something like you know the 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 moving the ship. It's it's a it's an a creative idea as well. It's an inspired concept. Um, yeah. What were your what sort of comes to mind for you for from the demo scene? Like things that were memorable to see or that blew your mind at the time. You know what? Actually. The, sort of mind-blowing stuff on the demo scene is more recently. So, you know, for people that don't know, the Commodore 64 demo scene is still huge, um, as is the Amiga, um, maybe not quite as much uh, Spectrum Amstrad and so on, but there's devotees that produce demos for those. I think a lot of the time, you know, they'll pick something like a Texas Instruments TI-99, which most people are like, mm, never heard of that. Um, and they'll do a demo for that, which is just for the hell of it. Um, and, and people get off on that, the fact that there's this outlying bit of hardware and they're getting it to do, uh, they assume getting it to do crazy things. That it, like transparencies. It, and yeah, all, yeah, all manner of, or <laughs> stuff that's done on the, there's a yardstick, you know, it's something on the Amiga. If you can do that on something that's 8-bit and a bit sort of crunchy. Um, or a facsimile of it, it's like, wee. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so um, to sort of go back to your original question, 
the the whole Pugsy thing, what happened there was I, I'd wanted to get back into the demo scene. I'd been writing some music on the Amiga and I happened to bump into a couple of guys in a computer shop in Liverpool and th- we just got chatting and then they wanted to start a demo group um, and they knew this other guy and we ended up in a thing called Mind Power Designs. It was kind of a short-lived demo crew. Um, and the guy that sort of spearheading it, he was just right on the ground floor of starting to learn to program and I was trying to sort of teach him a little bit about Amiga programming. But the two guys that he got in were really talented. I mean, the, Alan, the programmer, you know, he was he really knew what he was doing. And Lee Karras, um, he, who now is one of the directors of Fire Sprite in Liverpool and worked on, um, you know, loads of Psygnosis games. We ended up doing... Uh, they formed their own group called Dionysus. And Dionysus obviously produced the Pugsy, Pugs in Space demo. And they got me to do the music and the sound effects. And I'd sit with them and go, oh, I should do this next. And then maybe do this. And it was like a collaborative design process in terms of the character. And, uh, yeah, we produced the demo. Took it to Psygnosis at a computer show. And, um, well, we, t- we actually, we took it to a few companies... And we got a bit of a lackluster response from most of them. They didn't get it. It's like, well, is this a game or what are you trying to sell? No, it's a demo. It's a computer demo, but we'd like to make a game using the character. Uh, And because it wasn't Batman or whatever, you know, it wasn't a licensed thing. (laughs) So it it was literally at the very end of the day, we were kind of a bit, you know, downtrodden. and We went to see Psygnosis and they went crazy for it. Yeah, it's amazing. And where are you guys based? Liverpool. You're joking. You know, it was nuts that we went all the way to London to meet up when we were just, you know, literally in the same town. Um, and we started developing Pugsy, as a, you know, the game. Initially, we were contracted in, we were signed up, we were getting money every month. Uh, and I, I don't know whether it was lack of experience or they just didn't like the direction we were going in. But they eventually said, look, we've got this other team that are ready to rock and they want to get on with it and they've got a pre-existing engine and they've got a head start over you guys. Um, we'd like to just basically buy you out and, and you know, and have the Pugsy character and get Traveller's Tales to, to create the game. Mm. Uh, but right. in return, they gave Lee and Alan full-time jobs as well. Wow. On a, on a reasonable whack and got them to work in-house. So... You know, back in the day, that seemed like a, you know, flipping good deal uh, to get to work for Psygnosis and have a wad of cash. Um, you know, yeah. Pugsy was just Pugsy. So, yeah, so that happened. I was I had a full-time job already. So I was working for Littlewoods, the catalogue people, mm. as a programmer. Um, so I carried on working for Psygnosis and giving them music. And, and eventually it was just a case of, ah, let's get him in a house. Will you, you know, will you work in-house and, you know. So I, I joined Lee and Alan working in Signosis. Incredible. Because I know a lot of people talk about Signosis. Um, just even seeing the logo for most people is just such a special thing. And you just, there's so many games that they released that are just seminal. 
Um, and I know you spoke to the guys on the Retro Hour podcast, Ravi and Dan. In one of their like earliest episodes, it's episode five, isn't it? Yeah, it was a, yeah, a while back. Yeah, they're now on 300 or close to 300, very close. Oh and um, yeah, I love those guys. And um, yeah, they, they, uh, they said the same thing about, you know, how how um, heralded Psygnosis was and still is, like oh. the games that they released. Um, uh, yeah, phenomenal company to work for. Um, yeah, what, what do you remember about, about working there? Uh, how small it was to begin with. They, they had um, two, two and a half, if you can say that, offices. Uh, one of them was where the programmers and the artists were, and then there was another room to the side that I just remember had this huge meeting room and it was where, um, you know, the managing director sat, Ian Hetherington, um, and where all the deals were struck. Uh, but it, it quite quickly, that's when I was uh, freelancing for them. And then by the time they took me on full time, they sort of moved along a little bit to a, a different building. And they had uh, quite a few rooms, actually, at that point, and a lot more staff. It was very organically growing and growing. And they were not just developing stuff in-house, but, you know, um, publishing other people's work, like Traveller's Tales and DMA and all those guys. Uh, I remember... They did uh, Lemmings. Yeah, they did Lemmings, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I remember it those times very fondly. There was... Uh, I remember going to the warehouse across the way for the first time and just seeing, like, hundreds and thousands of boxes of various games... And that kind of made it real because if you work on a game and you write the music for it, uh, as I did, and then you get a couple of, you know, boxed editions for your free. Whoa. It's like, you know, the concept of getting a free game, even though it kind of makes sense. You've written the music for it. Yeah, you should get a copy of the game. But it was still, it was a free game. You know, because you didn't work on the game. You didn't program it. You didn't do the graphics. So that's someone else's sweat, blood and toil. Um, yeah, so that was that was great. But to then and and read reviews and just go, that's my name there, and you know, I got a, I got a five out of five or I got a nine out of ten or whatever for the audio. But to then go into that warehouse and see thousands of boxes, it was like, oh my god, this is real. It sort of makes it more real. Even going into the scale the, of it, yeah, the scale, I think, the magnitude. Because even going into a computer shop and seeing it on the shelf, that's just one or five or six copies in a shop. Um, but seeing, yeah, seeing a warehouse full of them, it, it sort of hits home that it's it's not just like a hobby thing; it's real, you know. Yeah, and I guess now it's it's absolutely huge. But I, d- I do remember the guy. I think it was Doctor Doak, the guy who um, worked at Rare on mm. Goldeneye. I remember him saying to Ravi, uh, Ravi and Dan about um, they had a similar thing with Goldeneye. Like they were just a few guys working together, putting it out there, and you know, to the whole nation and to like the world, it was like a huge experience with you and your mates, and mm-hmm. it was just a massive, massive game. But they didn't realize, yeah, the magnitude of it when they were putting it out there. Yeah, I mean, and you can't possibly know what's going to happen in the future, and and how. I mean, there's, uh, there's, I mean, there's not enough time, literally, to describe all the stuff that's happened as a result of, you know, the music or the products I've worked on and stuff and, and the feedback and the emails and people talking to me at computer shows and, and it just keeps going on and on and on like an, an unstoppable 
thing. Um, like the the other day, um, what's that? The other day, several months ago, um, this German musician contacted me and was sent me some rough remixes of some of the Wipeout music, and uh, I was like, oh yeah, that's that's pretty good. Yeah, I want to put it out as an album, and you know. It, it, I need some samples, I need MIDI files, you know, can, can, can you help in any way? And I thought, yeah, why not? So threw a few things to him and he, I'd forget about it and he'd come back with more mixes and they were getting really, you know, really good. And he wanted me to put really? them out and I thought, yeah, I don't really want to get involved in being a record label per se. So I said, you know, you, have you got a band, band camp page? You could put them out on there. And, and so it just happened. You know, this guy really took it to the nth level and it, and he got it out there and, uh, you know, he was really upfront about, you know, if I make any money, I'll give, you know, what what do you want? Like, what percentage? So I was like, <laughs> you know, 50-50 or whatever, you know, to talk about it. And, and I never really thought that it would amount to anything much. Um, but he said to me uh, last week, um, yeah, so I'll be in Switzerland... Uh, and I'm playing your remixes at uh, an outdoor venue um, in in Lucerne. Um, you know, it's going to be wicked, man. I was like, what? So, it, <laughs> yeah, utterly bizarre that you hear about there's that and then there's other, there's orchestral mixes of my stuff that was performed in Vienna that I found about after the fact. Um, wow, so I don't yeah. always get involved in stuff. Um, were you sending him stems? What, what, you, what were you sending him? Like the bounced out stems? No, I, I think just some samples uh, sort of pointed in the direction where he could get some samples. And of course he had the original recordings. Um, I think I did supply him with some MIDI at some point, literally just the notes for certain parts, if he wanted to play oh, it with different really? instrumentation. Um, but yeah, I mean, fair play to him. You know, he drove that whole project through and, and uh, he's produced some really nice... Cover version, well, not cover version, like, like, yeah, like a, like a, it's like a drum and bassy vibe uh, hmm. remixes. I'd love to hear those, man. What's the guy's name? Um, Could you send me a link to them and we'll put it in the show notes? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send a link through. Um, sure, and you get I'll make the, a note of the that. full details. Cool. Um, can I? I just want to backtrack a tiny bit because only because one of my guests asked me this and I never knew the answer to it. Mm. Um, let's just maybe go back to like Amiga days. So you're making the the music for the game and the sound effects. What were you using to make the like the sound effects, and how did that go as like an asset into the game? Uh, purely in terms of the Amiga side of things, I had to buy a box that went plugged into the parallel port on the Amiga. Um, mm. Cable comes out, and then there's a box with MIDI connections on the front, uh, and also audio in, so you could plug a microphone in, um, and then there's a bit of software that goes with it. So you, you, you press the space bar or click with the mouse button uh, to record, and you could just go, <coughs> or whatever, and much like you do with yeah. the PC, and then trim it, get the volume correct, so then you, know, you press it. <coughs> and, you know, there's a guy in a cavern... Uh, it's a cavern. There's a guy in a tavern uh, who you, you bump his drink... And he needs to go <coughs> like that. So it was liter it's literally as simple as that. The uh, files that you provide were in AIFF format, which is just a variation on WAV or MP3 or whatever um, that the Amiga used. And you would have a, 
a, a set of requirements in terms of what sounds were required and also limits. So let's say you, you had to get 25 sounds, um, you know, ooh, ah, oomch, and swish of a sword and uh, stool breaking and whatever else. And Someone you shooting a bird. Whatever. Ah. Whatever's <laughs> required for the game, yeah. And uh, they, you'd be told, yeah, you've got, got to fit all that into 32K or 64K or whatever the, you know, the limit was. And yeah. you, it, it could be a back and forth process. So you could say 20 in that much, it's not going to happen. You know, can we work this down? Or, you know, you've got 250K. It's like, oh, yeah, this is great. And then you could go back and say, <laughs> Uh, you know, the guy falls over. Well, I've done a sort of, uh, you know, pots and pans crashing to the floor because it'll fit in. Oh, yeah, great, great. So it wasn't just necessarily uh, fast food delivery, but with audio. You know, with a lot of the projects, there was some back and forth. Um, mm. And, of course, you've got to QA it, you know, it gets thrown in and, yeah, that doesn't work, that doesn't sound right, or it doesn't look right with the visuals. And in terms of recording, it was, you know, the beginner's guide to Foley, I don't know if people know what Foley is. It's yeah, where you've got a guy wearing shoes and he's there's a a, a kitty litter in a, in a kitty litter box and he stands in there and goes <laughs> and they record it. And back in the day, microphones were so crap that a lot of the um, you know sort of not just punches and stuff, you know, and all that sort of thing, but literally just people walking was was re-recorded. So literally, some guy watching film and he's. He's, he's standing on a paving slab wearing high heels because there's a girl that walks across. <laughs> so he, he's got to go click, 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 click. Um, so that was a real, a real art, real art form. Yeah. But yeah, so you, you'd learn to, you know, what, what, what could be done. And yeah, I guess downsampling it to a, yeah, relative to how much space you had, I suppose. Yeah, well, you, you, you could, could trim it. You could downsample it in semitones or, or a variable amount. So, yeah, you would do that. So if you had, like, a, I don't know, a guy falling to the floor where it's just... Well, you could get away with a really crappy sample rate, you know, so the size of the sample would be really small. But if you've got a sword, sort of two swords hitting each other, you know, swing, there's a lot of high frequency, a lot of high sounds in that. So you you swallow up quite a bit of uh, memory f with that kind of thing. That's really interesting. Yeah, I'd never thought of that sort of frequency. I mean, I know from sampling mm. that, yeah, you, you need that, but I've never related to video games before. Um, but, the, well, one more thing is is reuse as well. So it, not just in music, but in, in sound effects. So in music, you can have one sound that is literally uh, that noise. If you play it lower, it's... And it sounds like a kick drum. And if you play it really high, it's like, doo! so you could go, doo, 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 you know, use it as a tom, but it's just the one sample. I guess when it went to, because because Psygnosis went from that eight bit era. Um, when when did you work at Psygnosis? Just like start. When did you start working? What year was that? Uh, hastily opens LinkedIn. Oh uh, yeah. yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> I I remember it well. I started working for Psygnosis in 1994, 
and left in 1998. <laughs> Thank you. Wow, what an he amazing says, memory. says, <laughs> I know, it's incredible, isn't it? But I was freelancing before then. Okay, wow. Mm. I mean, that seems to be like the heyday, golden era that you were there at Psygnosis, like um, so many games. And also that crossover from the next generation of consoles that came after sort of Mega Drive, um, yeah, the PlayStation, Sega Saturn. Well, the truth of it is I was working freelance. So a lot of the stuff like Shadow of the Beast, Lemmings and all that, they were done freelance. And then it was a case of, we need, we need somebody in-house. You seem pretty reasonable. You've done a lot of work for us. How about it then? And I said, yeah, well, currently I'm earning X. I wasn't, of course. I did a couple of grand. And they were like, yeah, seems fair enough. Um, so not only did I get, at work, get to work for Cygnosis, I got a pay rise. And then I got lots of toys to play with. But, um, yeah, the main thing then was... Is it a good idea? Games are a bit risky. And then we're being bought out by Sony. Oh, well, there we go. That was the clincher for me. Yeah. Mm. Might be a good move. That wasn't a great move. Mm. Yeah, and a very a very uh, wry decision to tell them you're earning a bit more. <laughs> oh, I'll do that. Yeah. I mean, everybody should do that. What are you earning at the moment? Uh, yeah, add three. <laughs> yeah, I guess Thousand, it's like... not three. I mean, you know. It's sort of like yeah. when people ask you their age, isn't it? You always have to take off like five years from what you actually think just in case you've gone too far. So it's like the opposite of doing that, isn't it, really? Oh, I, I put more on. If, put yeah, more if, on. How, as you get older, it's like, how old are you? I'm 63. Wow, you look great for 63. <laughs> That's a good you? idea. Oh, well, yeah, I thought you were. And it can backfire. Yes, true, true, that is mm. true, that is true. But yeah, the, the PlayStation was like, um, yeah, 16-bit audio, wasn't it? Um, so, uh, yeah, hundreds of gigabytes, uh, megabytes for um, for a game. And yeah, I guess these restrictions on audio were, yeah, limited, but not, not so limited at all. Yeah, well, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Okay, we got 16-bit, 44 kilohertz or, or more. Um, fantastic, but that takes up a lot of space if you're going to go full tilt, you know, maximum resolution. So consequently, you don't. You know, you end up doing 22 kilohertz samples um, and, and you still have that situation if you've got a certain amount of um, sound SRAM, which, now we're talking, uh, I think it was 2 meg. Is that right? People can correct me. I think the, the PS1 had 2 megabytes of sound RAM. Um, which sounds like a lot, and it kind of is. Um, but when you've got to provide, you know, maybe speech and stuff Dialogue, in that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, and you can't, and some games would spool data from the CD, so you can't rely on that for music either. So we, I can't remember which games, maybe it was a truck racing game or something. I actually wrote Pro Tracker like style music on the PlayStation. Because we, they, you know, they were using the CD to spool data, so you couldn't have CD audio. Um, there was there was actually a, a, something like thirty seven kilohertz uh, CDXA audio that could be interleaved, so you could get your data and your music at the same time. Well, that took some forethought and planning and whatever. But, um, yeah, largely it was a case of you play music from the CD like you do with Wipeout. Or if you're loading in masses of map data and God knows what else, then you have to do tracker music. Right. Mm. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, and in, in terms of the PlayStation, then you worked on you worked on Colony Wars for Psygnosis. Was that? Yeah. I mean, how was how was the introduction of the PlayStation for you? Like that changeover. Like what what was that? How did that go as a company? How did you approach it? Um, yeah, well, it was one of those culture shock moments where, ah, oh, this is wicked, and I have to, you know, I'm not doing tracker music any, anymore. I can write full-on music, and then you realise that the equipment you've got isn't perhaps up to scratch. Then it's like, all right, well, I need a mixer, a few synthesizers, a sampler, you know, so you present them with this £15,000 sort of shopping list. Um, because they were cash-rich, they were like, yeah, is that enough? Do you need anything else? Well, a desk and a nice chair would, you know, that'd, that'd help. Oh, cables. Ferrari. Lots of cables. Ferrari, yeah, they weren't <laughs> going to stretch to that, I don't think. Um, yeah, so th- there was a bit of a culture shock moment in terms of uh, my sort of, uh, my familiar territory was 8-bit, a certain level of sampling and a very restricted hardware situation to the world is your oyster, do what you will. Oh, but it better sound like commercial music. And this game needs classical, and this game needs rock, and this game needs pop, and this game needs uh, ambient, and this one, and the list goes on, all these different musical styles. Thank God they didn't ask me for country and western. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, so with the PlayStation, um, the first game was uh, was Crazy Ivan, and uh, the idea there was... They wanted something industrial. People were talking like Nine Inch Nails and uh, I guess Gary Newman's latest stuff where it was kind of a bit clangy and industrial and edgy. So, yeah, that that was... I guess that was the first... Okay, the, there's no limit. It's CD audio. Um, go for broke. And, uh yeah. What a huge step up! I mean, that's so such a massive change, isn't it? From being, from making eight bit music and, and making sort of tracker music and having massive, well, having lim- limitations on what you're able to make, and then sort of now you've got to make sort of like f- sim- cinematic yeah. uh, music, which is uh, it up in the leagues with Gary Newman and Nine Inch Nails. Like that's a huge yeah, just thing. anything along those lines. Don't you know? Don't worry too much as long as it's uh, of similar commercial quality. And yeah. th- the thing is, you can buy a, a professional mixing desk and synthesizers and cables and whatnot, and then stare at them and go, "Okay, this goes here, that goes there." I've no previous history of using this stuff, um, and it's literally starting from ground zero and then hitting the button and recording and it sounds crap and then working out why and then learning about compression and EQ and mastering and so, you know, the idiot's guide too. And you just have to rely on the fact that compositionally you've got a sound uh, bedrock, but you then have to think, okay, don't worry about what you're doing. It's just listen to it and think, does that sound commercial? Does that sound too bassy, too toppy? Uh, Is it sounding muddy so it was actually great to be writing music for games but at the same time being paid to teach yourself you know uh hash 101 being a recording uh, engineer and a, and a producer and uh you know a sampling engineer and all the other sort of things that you need to do and get your head around so yeah just uh, just the thought right let's get some source material so with with crazy ivan it was a case of sitting down and thinking 
okay, crunchy, industrial, what have I got? I've got shortwave radio. So dragged that out and just recorded a good hour, an hour and a half um, onto a, a four-track uh, cassette recorder, four-channel recorder, which I had, had at home. And uh, I thought, that's good, because that'll give it the cassette noise-type vibe. And I had all manner of stations from all around the world, um, and then raid the VHS collection, plugged that in. <laughs> so in Crazy Ivan, there's samples from many films, some, I mean, I shouldn't really say from which films. Mm. One of the films has got a flying car and replicants in. Uh, so if you listen to the Crazy Ivan music and listen out for like sounds and percussion and stuff, you might recognise some of it from maybe that film. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, and it, and it was literally trial and error. And then just at the point where I'd finished that, hey, we're doing this new game. We're not sure what we're going to call it. Maybe wipe out, you know, um, we're moving to Waver Tree. So you don't have to start, well, start now, have noodling some ideas, but we're going to build you a proper studio and get some more equipment. And so that was kind of the, the point of starting with the PlayStation and having to do commercial quality audio and then getting into Wipeout. It wasn't long at all. You know, wow. it, was, it was kind of blink of an eye-ish, really. Yeah, that I mean that's that's another huge step up because the, your music in that game or that series of games was with the biggest artists. Um, I don't even want to say off the time because they're still big artists now. You know, mm. Underworld, Chemical Brothers, uh, Orbital, <laughs> Left yeah. Field. At least with Cra- Crazy Ivan, it was me. So yeah, there's no yeah. yardstick. There's no stable mates. They're gonna look make you look shit. Mm. And I didn't even know they were going to bring commercial music into it. It was a case of, right, there's another game and you're going to write music for it and it's a racing game. And I was like, oh, okay. So, and, and the first tune I wrote for it sounded a bit industrial and crazy Ivanish because I was, it was so close as far as I was concerned. I wasn't an, a, an expert in that genre, the whole sort of electronic and dance. And, and I didn't see the difference between trans, techno, gabba, um, drum and bass, um, you know, it was all just sort of some sort of electronic mishmash to me. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my idea of electronic music was the very melodic, uh, craft worky Jean-Michel Jarre, all that kind of thing. So this was, a, this was a, a, a learning exercise in terms of they're asking for this genre. What the hell is that genre? How do you define it? How, wh- where are the walls? Um, so it's like, yeah, that first track, yeah, it's good, but it's, it sounds a bit industrially. We want more trance kind of vibe. Yeah, sure. No worries. More trance. Door closes. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Need reference material. So. I mean, it's 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 a game that really changed. Took the I sort of use, I wrote an article a couple of days ago on um, oh what was it? Oh, it's just like a PlayStation adapter that will, uh, that will go out of the back of the PlayStation. It's a VJ adapter, but I did write in the intro to that like how much the PlayStation changed uh, like video gaming and it being cool and and Wipeout was clearly one of the flagship reasons for that happening. 
Yeah, it's interesting that you didn't. That you said that yeah, they they were going to bring in those other those other artists. I guess Sony had those connections. Like, what was the? Why did they? Do no, that? no, not at all. Yeah, I mean, when they were when they were creating the early demos and um, developing the game, it was the kind of music they were listening to. What what happened was some of the essence of the game came out of playing Mario Kart whilst listening to you know, left field or whatever, or prodigy. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, what, what's, what's great is if you turn down the whole Nintendo-esque stuff and just have some doof, doof, doof going on in the background, it's a lot more exciting. <laughs> and wouldn't it be better if it was like flying ships and they were doing like, you know, several hundred miles an hour. And so that's kind of roughly where the, I guess there's a hint of F-Zero in there and all sorts of other influences. Um, but it, it's like the perfect storm of, this is a good bit, this is a good bit, I've enjoyed this experience, let's just put it all together into a game. And that was Nick Burkham's kind of thing. Um, so the the commercial music was already there, if you know what I mean. It was part of the concept. So to kick it off, it was, well, we need, we, we need the sound guy to create the engines and the uh, weapon sounds and the vocal, you know, three, two, one, go, and all that. Um, but Which are obviously also amazing. He's going to be doing music as well. And then, you know, it's, well, can we get some of this? Can we get the Prodigy? Can we get Orbital? Can we get... And so they were approached. And you would think because Sony and Sony Music, but no, that avenue was of no help. It was a case of just approaching them and saying, we've got a games console and it's, uh, you know, we want to make it cool and and um, sort of like you come back from the club and you want to play this game and we, we favour these artists. Are you interested? Uh, and I don't know the exact list of who was approached and who said no, but I think there was a lot of no. We don't want to get into that side of things because it's a bit nerdy and a bit kids in their bedroom and mm. it's not to do Sweaty with clubbing. teenagers. Yeah, yeah, didn't have a great... Not the kind of teenagers that are going out to raves and you know they're on you know they're on the m25 um, m25 or whatever or, or or what you know and trying to get into some warehouse through a window it's not that's not we're not aiming at the the kids who are a bit you know spotty and eating a mcdonald's and, and zapping aliens that's not our thing yeah so definitely. it took a bit of it took a bit of convincing and then when the second one was coming out I think it was the other way around. They were banging on the door going, yeah, we want our artists on that next what flying game thing. Absolutely. I think the, yeah, yeah that's the 2097 and XL in America. Um, yeah, amazing series. But also, I mean, for you as a, as, as the producer as well, uh, what were you making those tracks with? Because, I mean, for example, the, the, the tracks like Cairodrome, Mm. it's really i mean it sounds a bit there's a bit of klf sort of sound to that like only just listening to it in the last few days having heard it like millions of times growing up like listening in the last few days was yeah i just sort of felt yeah there's some klf in there there's also um there was also a group called lab four i don't know if you remember there's a group no, called lab four and they made really hard trance and uh, yeah um chirodrome definitely sort of had elements of that i think it's like those fast sort of synthy sounds where the there's a bit of reverb or delay on the synth but also the filters opening up and closing in very small margins but yeah canada is another amazing track off wipeout of yours body emotion all of those tracks like if i close my eyes and hear them 
Mm. I'm just seeing the, the the scenery fly around. So yeah, what were you using to make those? What were you using to make those amazing tracks? Uh, the Amiga 1200 was the sequencer. So it was running software called Bars and Pipes, which, mm. yeah, by Blue Ribboned. Um, and they were, they were, I think they were bought by Microsoft to do something. Um, so maybe to do their version of Garage Band. I don't know. Um, but it was it was literally just MIDI based. It didn't have samples. You couldn't play any kind of audio in there. So it was just the f- the focus uh, point for triggering uh, synths like the uh, well sampler AKS twenty eight hundred, which had really solid um, history in terms of you know sample playback, built in effects, had a good level of polyphony, so you could trigger a load of samples at the same time. And uh, I got a huge external hard drive, so a library of sounds were going on there. I've said this before, but yeah, a, a lot of the samples that were in there, some of them were of my own making. There were even some Amiga sounds in some, you know, some of the percussion. Uh, and there's like a, there's a bass line that sounds like a frog. Kind of that sort of really weird back of the throat kind of uh, bass line. That was an Amiga uh, bass line. But largely it was... Um, Time and Space, uh, the sample company, their first foray into providing sample CDs, which is like volume one, two, three, four, and so on. So I had volume one and two. Uh, I don't know how I came across them. I think it was in a synth magazine. Was perusing the back and it was like, oh, you want to make sort of techno or trance or, uh, you know, club music. These are the sample CDs you need. I was like, well, that's a no-brainer. Let's get these in. <laughs> and then I was listening to them and, and it's, a smorgasbord of samples just stolen left, right, and center from records, you know, uh, stretching back to, I don't know, maybe the 50s or 60s. So, yeah, they they weren't very forthcoming. I think it was in the fine print somewhere for fun and games only kind of vibe. I didn't know. It was just like, oh, sample these CDs from a proper company. So... That's what they're for. They're for making music. I didn't yeah. even realise the legalities of it. Uh, no, but they yeah, were I think with... no one did back then, didn't no. they? In the early sampling days, it was like, uh, yeah. I mean, Time and Space, is, I think they're still going as a sample company. I yeah, actually... they are. I mean, they're, they're 100% legit and they've got a vast array of sample CDs. But that, this was early days. Mm. I did speak um, to Fatboy Slim a few weeks ago or months ago and, um, yeah, he was the same. It was like there was no rules then, so you could just record anything and put it in the track and... Um, and then people went, hang on, but that's a bit of my recording. Why should you make money from it? Where's my slice? Yeah. Oh, which is absolutely <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Um, I just thank God that I didn't get any, uh, or didn't bring any pain to Sony through yeah. those sample CDs. Honestly, the, the, C, the samples that are on those CDs, so many people have used them. Um, I, don't, I don't think anybody's kicked off. Yeah, to, to my knowledge anyway. Mm, but yeah, some... I mean, a, a lot of them were okay to use, but there were one or two rhythms and beats and uh, bass lines and stuff that were clearly sampled off a, you know, a record or whatever. Nice. I think you've been good over the years with merch. There's There's been a few stories that I've heard and read about you um, having like your own merch that you're giving out to people and and getting logos designed for yourself. I really, I really like that, um, that idea of just, yeah, having things to give out um, mm. to, and just like, maybe things in a drawer that you remember from years ago. Yeah, I've, 
Yeah, I mean, T-shirts, jackets, uh, stickers, CDs, USB sticks. Uh, the, the, the big one was when I did the, uh, the metal tins with this big Cygnosis owl on. Um, I got them made in China, uh, laser etched, and, and then wow. you open it up and everything's like circle cut and in the middle there's a, a, a USB stick, but it's the, the Cygnosis owl full colour, like rubberized, and then you open that up and you can plug that in and it's got my songs on. Nice. Um, and each one's individually signed, individually numbered. And so that was, oh, that was a nightmare of a project, but I, I finally got it sort of off the ground. And I think I, I think I sold it. There's about 250 something of them out there. And actually digging through some uh, boxes and stuff upstairs, I found more tins. So the Cygnosis tins. Oh, wow. From, from that project. There's, I think there's like... I don't know, maybe there's 40 or 50 of those. And I found some I'll spare... I'll buy one. I'll buy one. Can I have one? <laughs> and every, everyone I've said that they exist, they're like, oh, what are you going to do? Are you going to put them on eBay? Yes, I am. Yes, I am putting them on eBay. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, that's what I do with them. <laughs> but, um, well, I'll just get rid of them, really. Um, I'm going to keep a few. But, yeah, so... Yeah, I um, love that. I love that, that stuff. Yeah, I mean, no, it's, it, it's not... Like, for instance, here... So that's a, a, a beer mat. So I've got a couple of those from back in the day. But it, like you say, merch kind of like puts you straight back. It's tactile, it's there. So yeah. some people have got cold storage jackets that I made back in, you know, I don't know, 99 or whatever, or, or hoodies and stuff. The, the, you know, the logo's starting to peel off and whatever, but it's there, it's in the cupboard and it sort of reminds them of that time, um, you know, when they ordered it and and wore it to something and vomited all over it. Or, you know, it's got some sort of, maybe a slightly better, you know, memory of of, of, uh, of some event, but, yeah. Yeah, uh, well, I think all that merch, um, and you, yeah, you also had stories of um, a couple of guys, I think they were brothers or friends, that wanted your entire music back catalogue, even even the Amiga stuff, like all the tracker files. And, yeah, you said you found some merch to send off with them, and I just, yeah, I just love that, that you've, you've kept that as a... Um, going um and also the the thing i'd never noticed was the stylizing of cold storage just making mm. the o's lowercase like i'd never actually consciously noticed that but that was really it's a really cool thing and i know you attributed it to um another guy i've got his name down here somewhere but i've basically just got a massive a for oh right yeah it's random it, lee harris he That's was the it. guy that he he designed the the pugsy character yeah so he oh did he oh, right. yeah yeah, so he, he, he was there in it right from the start. So Lee Harris, yeah, I've got that, yeah. Yeah, he was working at Cygnosis, and uh, I said, you know, I'm doing this wipeout thing, yeah. I want a logo, because the artists have said, if I get a logo done, they'll put it in one of the billboards as you fly past. Oh, so nice. So if you see, like, a sort of pyramid-type thing with cold storage on, that's in one of the games. And then... Yeah, and then another one, there's just like this blue arch with a blue dot. And that is that used to be my logo at one point. So if you take that arch and you move it through 90 degrees, you've got a C and a dot. And then so the full thing was C dot L D S T dot R A G E. So that's where at some point it was like, well, I could use a full stop instead of a an O. So a lot of the times, you know, like if I've got a, um, say if I'm on Twitter or, or whatever, my my login might be cold storage with you know dots, 
because mm. that's generally available, whereas loads of people would, you know, register as cold storage because of various games having cold storage levels and stuff like that. Obviously, yeah, Wipeout was massive, hugely influenced uh, culture, <laughs> zeitgeist for the 90s, without a doubt. Um, but also, yeah, the music, the music range of software that came out on the PlayStation. So those, am I right in thinking that was with Jester Interactive, the company that you yes. started with your brother? Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, Hence where... Jester, Jester Brothers International, Jester Interactive. That's kind of where that came from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing, mm. amazing. Harking back to the, mm-hmm. the 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 bedroom program days. That's really cool. Um, so yeah, what I mean, what it's essentially music is um, a DAW for the PlayStation, isn't it? Like as sort of what it is, music making software on the PlayStation, which no one had done before. Um, like, where did the idea come from, and how did you make that happen? That idea happen. Um. I was approached by my brother. Uh, he was working for a guy who had uh, several hundred thousand pound in the bank that was going to be heavily taxed by the tax man. Um, he'd said, well, why don't we have a bit of a gamble and go into games? And initially the boss was like, are you nuts? And he goes, no, there's a lot of money in it. Um, I've got some experience in it, Lee, which he had, because you know he, he'd been my sidekick through all of the Amiga music production, because his play routine, his coding would be uh, provided along with my music. So you'd get a full package deal. It's like, you know, you're writing the the, the the game engine and the graphics and everything. Well, we give you the play routine, you just plug it in, you call this uh, address and the music starts playing. You call this and a sound effect goes off. So um, he said, yeah, my brother would be happy to sort of come on board as a... Um, uh, like a, a piecemeal um, consultant. So, you know, whenever you need advice, he could come in and say, and also an inroad, because I'm working at Cygnosis, who have obviously they, they're owned by Sony and, you know, knock on doors and everything. So, he's like, yeah, actually, that's not a bad idea. So, yeah, I was approached. They got some guy who was going to head it up, and I was hand holding him through the process. And then it all went quiet. And then I said, you're not doing it anymore. And he goes, yeah, we are doing it. But he wasn't really up to snuff and he admitted it. He was like, this isn't my thing. And uh, Gavin was wondering if you would do it. So basically quit Cygnosis and take the risk and come and join us. I don't know why I thought this was a good idea. Because <laughs> thinking back, I, mean, I was young, I guess. So it's like, screw it. I can, I guess I was so confident that I could, if this didn't work out, I could start writing music again somewhere and... Honestly, they'd hinted that they would take me back anyway. Mm-hmm. Be- because that was the thing. If you left Cygnosis, there was a history of a lot of people coming back because they'd go away, they'd do something great, and then there was value in having them back. But if they asked you to leave or you were made redundant, you know, because a team had to be shut down, you you didn't come back. So it was, I guess that's why I thought it was a good 
you know, a good thing. So my brother and I sat down one evening at my house and discussed, well, if I do accept this, what are we going to do? What kind of game? I think we had about 200,000 to play with. So, you know, how long is that times the number of people? So we wanted something out within 12 months with, you know, two, three, four people. Um, and we had a rough idea of who we could get to do the graphics and the program and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know, I think it was... It, Lee says it was him and I say it was me. Uh, but we've kind of decided it was both of us. Um, yeah. Started talking about, well, what can the... What's not being done and what can the PlayStation do? And, of course, me being musically minded... Well, it's got 24 channels, 2 meg of, of sound RAM. Um, why don't we do, like, a music tracker? Because that hasn't been done. So it was like, well, mm, is this going to fly? So we we spoke to the guy that, you know, was fronting the money. Oh, no, 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 it's too out there. We need a game. So we started, yeah, we had, uh, let's, it's in a kitchen. So you've got the base beans and you've got, you clang the saucepans together for the, uh, saucepan lids together for the percussion and, we, I think we spent like two or three weeks brainstorming ideas like this. We had a playground at one point. I've still got the uh, artwork uh, <laughs> to frame. It's like, you know, this is what it could have been. Um, where you go on the roundabout and that's the drum machine. You come down the slide for, for like bass lines and I was just nuts. Wow. And in the end, the guy just turned around to me and he said, this is all crap, isn't it? I said, yeah. Should we just do a music sequencer? Yeah. So we did. We just sort Isn't of went it, for it. But then it was a case of we got so far down the design and then, uh, is this going to fly with Sony? So we contacted them and they were like, well, it's fortunate for you. We would have said no, but we're trying to open up the PlayStation as a thing that you should have in the lounge to watch, right. te watch films, play games, enjoy yourself in other ways. So, yeah, this sounds, sounds like a great idea. It could, could sit really well. We don't want any knitting programmes or anything like that. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with knitting. Which do exist, um, yeah. by the way. <laughs> but not for the PlayStation, I don't think. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so music creation. No, that's, that's passable. You know, that would sit with the culture. And there's quite a few things like that that happened. Uh, like, we wanted to do a... Uh, uh, once music was out, we wanted to provide extra samples and so demo songs and stuff. So the official PlayStation magazine in the UK, we want to give you some extra songs and samples. And they were like, oh, yeah, this is cool. How does it work? Well, you put the demo disc in, boots up, you go to the menu, do the usual stuff you do on your, you know, magazine, uh, or like game demos and stuff. Or there's the music TM data pack, and that'll write, the songs and the samples to a memory stick. Then you boot up music and voila, you've got extra songs. Yeah, great. Send it off to Sony. No, we, we've never had a, a demo disc that writes to memory cards. Why? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, good point. All right then. So we were the first that did that. Wow. Um, so there were quite a few... Like there was stuff to do with the hardware sampler as well with Music 3000. You know, that was another, there were aspects of that that meant that we had to do things in a certain way, hardware-wise, that they hadn't done. So we had to get that greenlit by, um, you know, HQ in Japan. Mm, um, that was like a sampler that, that came with the PS2 version, was it? Uh, it didn't come with it. It was a, a, an additional peripheral you could, peripheral you could buy, uh, and it went in the cartridge slot but it had a, a connector. You could plug in a microphone that came with it. Like, 
like one of these, <laughs> like with a <laughs> little uh, foam thing on. Um, yeah, so I don't know why I'm doing this because when I send you this recording, it's not going to, but anyway, uh, you can intersperse this if you People like. People will get it. I think they don't. It, yeah, <laughs> no, it's just uh, for those listening, I've got an Audi's headset. Uh, yes, Audi's can send me more free headsets. Um, yes, they will. And me, yeah. please. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, well, actually, I've criticised their headsets, but anyway. Um, yeah, so it's got the little uh, foam thing on it. So, they, they, I mean, it was cheap and cheerful. It did the job. So you could get some vocals in there. But you could plug in, a, um, you know, any kind of synthesizer or whatever and create your own samples. So that was that was a first, having something that plugs into the memory card reader that's actually a sampler. Yeah. Um, and they're quite rare. I've I've got two I think here in the box but they go for uh, you know collectors wanting those they go for quite a bit on on eBay as well I did see one on eBay today just looking after the uh, looking out for them because I'd never heard of them in my life before Uh um yeah but an amazing amazing piece of software uh and it was also released on PC as well wasn't it it was on PC Game Boy Game Boy Advance uh yeah Uh, obviously PS1 PS2 and um yeah it's, well i should answer your original question which was well i was started to answer it with you know the, the the preamble into how did we get to do it but the reason the main the, the big driving force behind it was yeah it hadn't been done before but when i was a kid i wanted a four track cassette recorder so i could do my own demo tapes um for people that don't know what that is um a cassette tape is a spool of magnetic plastic <laughs> um, that had songs on. And uh, you put it into a machine, press play, and it played it. And it was serial. You know, you had to just wind through it to get to the bit of music you wanted. I know this sounds ridiculous, but I'm that old that people go, what's a cassette tape? Uh, uh, I'm that old too. <laughs> <nearly> so, <laughs> so yeah, so that's the principle. And it's got two sides. So, you, it's you know, you put it in, you press play, and it plays a stereo track on that side of the tape. If you then take the tape out when it gets to the end, put it back in, press play, you get the B side, you get the other side, like a vinyl A and B. So it doesn't take much of a genius to work out, hang on, left and right on that side, flip it over, left and right on that side. So it's got four channels, four tracks of audio. Because if you, what you could do with a cassette player is there's a little hole, you put your screwdriver in and you can move the head up and down that's reading the the audio and if you screw it really tight down or actually let the screw right up you go past the forward one and you can hear the back one so oh, you no. you get in the b one here's carbs here's his gosh that's that weird up everything backwards <laughs> oh god i hope that wasn't a swear word forwards. <laughs> yeah you might, that might be a subliminal message <laughs> uh, uh, that should be commodore 64 backwards but anyway oh, um respect <laughs> Yeah, so uh, it probably isn't. It's been a while since I've done that one. Yeah, so you've got four channels. So they brought out a cassette player recorder that had two heads, essentially, and it could record four at a time or two at a time or whatever. So you could have drums on one, bass on the other, have some sort of guitar or whatever, and sing on the fourth, and then mix the levels of them and even bounce those. So if you had three tracks, you could bounce those down to one giving you what you had before, plus now three spares to do more stuff with. And they were expensive, 
It's not the sort of thing you could get cheaply when you were a teenager. And I knew a couple of guys with them. One guy was okay and one was a total arsehole who would say, oh, could I, can, yeah, yeah, this weekend. Oh, great. And then you'd say, can I come over? And you, yeah, I'm, I'm not feeling it today. I'm going to go do something else. Oh, maybe next weekend. Maybe. Uh, you know, just lording it over us. So that stuck with me. That asshole, I won't name him. And uh, so I thought, I want to put that power into the hands of kids. But they've got 24 tracks. They've got effects. They can save their songs to memory stick. They can, you know, exchange it with their friends and get a real sort of community thing going. And the samples in there should be of a good enough quality that you could do a pretty good demo uh, and send that off to a record company and maybe get a deal. So that was the, that was mm. the main driving force behind it. And to have and a job they, and make money. <laughs> yeah. And whether you're, was it, did you create those content, like the assets that are within music? Was, was that yeah, for, like loops and one hits? For the first one, uh, it was largely me. Um, for the second one, it largely wasn't, although the samples were. Um, I sort of dipped in and out because we had, you know, Gesture Interactive was growing. It had lots of other projects it was working on. But for that first one, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I burnt myself out and drove myself into the ground. We all did working on that because we got it done in nine months uh, from start to finish. And at one point I'd been awake for three days and I was in the recording studio with a controller in my hand and I was writing some music and then the whole of the left side of my face and hand and everything just went numb. Oh, wow. And I was like, okay, I think I'm probably going to pass out now. I thought I was having a stroke, if I'm honest. Fuck yeah. uh, But I spoke to other people afterwards and said, it was the left side of your brain going to sleep. Or no, hang on, the right side of your brain, because that's connected to your left side, I think. I think that's how it works. So I was just like, okay. I put the controller down. We had a deadline, man. You know what it's like? I put the controller down. I lay down on the carpet. The whole studio was carpeted apart from the ceiling anyway, really thick pile. And just lay down, passed out. And then I think my brother woke me up and said, are you all right? I had like just drool down the side of my face going into the carpet and I just wiped it away with my hand and went, yeah, I'm all right. I'll get on with this demo song and just got straight <laughs> back up again and started again. And within 20 minutes, the left side of my face was going numb again. Really? I was like, this isn't good. I'm going to have a proper sleep. And he goes, look, have a sleep. So I went in the corner, threw my coat down, had a kip for about, I don't know, three hours. And then I got woken up again, went to the loo, came back, made a coffee, went back in, back on it, finished the demo. And we got it done for the Monday. Um, Amazing. Yeah, and at that time I had a, a, a girlfriend at home with a kid, my first kid. So it was a real, yeah, bad timing. Yeah, obviously, yeah, hugely dedicated to your craft. Um, sure. Yeah, I wouldn't do that again. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds a bit of sounds a bit dicey. A bit extreme. Live and learn, yeah. But yeah, yeah, so I've I was hallucinating at one point, I think. Yeah. Three days without sleep, it'll do that. It's uh Yeah, I think A4X Twin deliberately did that. He 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 did gave himself sleep deprivation to see what creative ideas came out of his head. So I'm sure he's maybe perhaps you could share 
similar experience with him <laughs> but that sounds yeah i've never heard anyone describe that and it does very much sound like a, a stroke but i'm so glad that that wasn't the case i'm glad it wasn't as well yeah yeah <laughs> cool well tim thank you so much for speaking to me it's been it's been really good fun to speak to you man yeah Have likewise huge respect for you and your work uh, the gaming stuff the music stuff as well um yeah your whole back catalog's really inspiring to me and i know to like yeah a, a whole generation of people as well who must always tell you how much your music beats to them. Uh, yeah, it's a massive, massive deal. Just finally, like, where can people find you online if they want to check out your stuff and, and listen to it? The best sort of kicking off point is coldstora.ge. So, nice. I yeah. see what you've done there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> .ge is uh, somewhere in Russia. Uh, Georgia, right. I think it is. And I went through some registration company in, I think, in Switzerland that uh, registered the .ge for me. So, but uh, coldstorage.org.uk was the original, and that still stands. But yeah, coldstora.ge, you can you can get all the links are there. You know, the Spotify and the iTunes and everything, Uh, SoundCloud, uh, Bandcamp, YouTube, uh, Twitter. Yeah everything's there so um yeah my my full collections at Bandcamp, and i'm gradually moving stuff onto the streaming services because that's a lot easier for people to you know just throw throw a few out there yeah you had a huge you've got millions of streams on there now haven't you i saw i saw you say the other day yeah it's incredible (laughs) honestly um a lot of people badmouth the streaming services like spotify itunes and deezer and, and all them um and there's loads of other there's there's literally hundreds of streaming services around the world uh and the i use ditto uh as my distributor and mm-hmm. they've they've registered with uh with all of these so they throw the music out there and it's fantastic because you find out you've got like 12 listeners in kuala lumpur and uh <laughs> 14 listeners in the antarctic and it's like how um so yeah it's it's um it's the equivalent for me of radio so the chances of uh, a, a sort of F-lister like me getting on real radio, you know, I have to badger the BBC, you know, uh, BBC Six or something and try and get out there that way. But mm-hmm. for, for, for people who aren't, you know, full-on celebrities in the, in, the, in the press and everything, to just get out there and have their music listened to, it, it's fantastic. And it's, you know, if somebody buys your album, well, it's great. It's a, it's a real honour that they've spent their three, five, ten, twelve, fifteen quid or whatever they've paid for it. But if somebody's just listened to it on Spotify every week, uh, you know, and I get naught point naught naught one pence of that, that adds up. And that's how a lot of artists can still, you know, exist and survive because it's an ongoing kind of Patreon vibe, you know, keep them going sort of thing. Yeah, that completely makes sense. And you, and you have like reinvented, you did a chilled version of the soundtracks too. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, I definitely urge people to, to check out your back catalogue. Um, yeah, thank you very much, Tim. It's been great to speak to you, man. Yeah, well, thanks for the the opportunity. And um, yeah, hello to everybody out there. And thanks to all the people who are still listening. Because it's, uh, yeah, it's an honour that, that there's people out there still interested in keeping the music alive. Definitely.
Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, take care. See you soon, Tim. All right. Cheers. Tim, what an absolute legend. Uh, he's worked on so many unbelievable games, like classic games that, have, as I said, have stood the test of time beyond Wipeout. Um, there's so many amazing games. Unfortunately, such is the finite time that we have. Uh, we only went into about a third of what I wanted to talk about. Uh, we didn't talk so much about the music for EJ Collections, which he's also worked on. Um, but yeah, an amazing guy. Check out his music. It's all on Bandcamp. And uh, go and play Wipeout. If you don't know it, it's absolutely brilliant. Okay, on the show next time, we're speaking to a orchestration arranger, composer, um, violinist, singer, all-round super talented female um, who's worked with the likes of Elbow, John Grant and um, even Kanye West, believe it or not. So uh, yeah, lots to talk about with her. We have a really interesting conversation which will be out in a couple of weeks. Uh, thank you very much for your support once again. It's really appreciated and uh, I'm Madeira and I'll see you again soon.